Once again, good morning. I am certainly glad that all of you are here. I knew uh, uh, that we would be a, a little more thinned out than typical, and that uh, one, I, when I tried to call people to do uh, prayers this week, uh, uh, everyone was going to be gone that I had called, and after going through about five or six people, I just called an elder to do the prayer, and uh, Bob was willing to do that, and I appreciate it. And uh, we also have around, oh, 30-plus of our students who are normally here who are off on a rafting trip uh, this weekend, and uh, they're probably worshiping right now uh, uh, out there in uh, uh, their setting, and... and uh, Hope they come back safe. Um, I wanted to, uh, uh, I guess, more on, on an official level, let you know something uh, uh, in case you did not know. Uh, David Meek, uh, who uh, uh, I think many of you do know because he leads uh, worship for us a lot and, and singing, and, and um, uh, he has now entered the ranks officially of uh, campus ministry intern. And I'm very thankful for this. For those of you who do not know David, he hails from the uh, Brentwood, Nashville area. Uh, has uh, just uh, just the most wonderful family. Had an older brother that was uh, super active with us when he was here, uh, Daniel. And uh, um, David uh, is uh, uh, beginning his uh, master's in the area of building science. And uh, just so you know, his long-term plans... Uh, are when he finishes here, he wants to go work on a, a master's, uh, probably at Abilene and missiology missions, and um, uh, and would like to do uh, mission work in either Central or South America. And uh, in fact, this summer he's finishing up uh, his minor in Spanish, and and it would help contribute to that. So I hope that you'll do what you always do to our uh, with our interns, and that is to encourage them and build them up and uh, uh, and acknowledge them. And uh, I wanted to let you know that. Uh, if you didn't know that David's doing this, and uh, he's a person of great character, just uh, just as solid as they come, and I'm thrilled that he's with us. Well, I hope you got an outline as you came in, and it helps you to fill it out as we go through. Feel free to do so. As you see, it is entitled Religion. I heard a story about a guy that uh, stopped at a stoplight and uh, ended up uh, pulling up right behind a minivan that was driven by uh, a woman. And apparently she was sifting through her purse and looking for something, and uh, uh, she got so distracted uh, uh, that she uh, didn't realize the light had, had turned green. Now, every male knows that a green light is, is, is a commandment. It's, it's not a suggestion. And, um, but she was so distracted that she uh, uh, didn't realize that the light had turned green. In fact, it went through the cycle and turned red again while she was still sitting there. And of course, this raised the ire of the man behind her, and uh, so he began to protest and shouting out his window and banging on the, on the steering wheel. Now, he was carrying on this conniption fit until a few minutes later, uh, there was a policeman tapping at his window with a gun drawn, ordering him out of the car. And the man said, you can't arrest me for hollering in my own car. But sure enough, next thing he knew, he was in handcuffs, he was in the back of the squad car being taken to the police station, and he was thrown in a jail cell. After a couple hours, the officer showed back up, opened the jail cell, said, you're free to go. And the man said, I knew you couldn't arrest me from taking a fit in my car. You haven't heard the last of me yet. At which the officer said, I didn't arrest you for having a fit in your car. But as I, you know, sat there watching you screaming and yelling and losing control... I noticed that cross hanging from your rearview mirror, 
And I noticed the bumper sticker that said Choose Life on the back and that little fish sign that you had uh, implanted there in the back uh, bumper and, and that Jesus is coming back frame around your license plate. And, well, I just assumed that you'd stolen the car. A lot of people claim that they've got religion, but by the way they act, you wonder what kind of religion they've got. And I don't know who coined the phrase, walk the talk, but it could have been James. Show me your faith by the way you live. In fact, we're going to be confronted once again by James in our text today about the idea, if you remember, if you follow this thing as we've gone through it, on deception. This is the third time in the first chapter that James is going to warn us again and use the idea of deception, being deceived. The first deception, remember, had to do with how we view God. God isn't out to get you. God wants to bless you and give you such wonderful things. So don't have a distorted view about God. He gives you only good things. You know, there are other players on this field other than God like our archenemy, the devil. Um, The second deception had to do with listening to the word, but never doing anything about it, not acting on it. And now the third deception. One thing you've got to remember about religion is that religion, by its very nature, what makes it up, makes it vulnerable to deception, self-deception. And that's because of all the traditions and the rituals and religion that are there in many ways to define it from God, but we can also hide behind them. We can actually develop an approach to Christianity that hinders our ability to undergo genuine self-examination. In other words, we just miss the point. French novelist and playwright Alexander Dumas, uh, he wrote uh, The Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, as among his great works. He once had a heated uh, quarrel with a rising young politician. And the argument became so intense that a duel was inevitable. And since both of these guys were known to have superb shots and that the outcome would mean they would probably end up both being mortally wounded, they decided to draw a lot and the loser would have to shoot himself. Well, Dumas lost the draw. And so with pistol in hand, uh, he uh, went in silent dignity into another room. He closed the door while the rest of the company waited outside in gloomy silence to hear the sound of the shot that went into his career and his life. At last they heard the shot fired. His friends ran into the room. They opened the door to find Dumas standing there with a smoking gun in his hand. And he said, gentlemen, something most regrettable has happened. I missed. And that's what tends to happen to us when we evaluate ourselves under the cloak of religion. James says it's very easy for a religious person to miss the truth about himself, and James doesn't want us to miss. And so he gives us, basically he paints a picture, a description of what real Religion from God's heart and mind, what it ought to be. So the question is, got religion? Well, let's see. And we pick up now in James chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And we'll only travel a short distance today, only two verses. But I think you'll find it's rather concentrated. He says this. 
If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight ring on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. How many of us are still standing? Notice what James tells us, that some religion is faultless, some religion is worthless. And so is the religion you have, is it really worth having? You see, the tension here isn't between Christianity and some other genre of religion that sits across the table in dialogue about religion in the world. The tension of this text has to do with whether it is authentic Christianity or artificial Christianity. And the specific word for religion used here is found only here in this text in James. And although it can refer to both inner and outer qualities of religious worship, here James is talking about the external qualities. You see, James recognizes that there are certain external rituals and traditions that are identified with and in many ways define Christianity. And what James wants us to grasp here is that faultless religion isn't the perfect observance of rituals, but instead it is defined by a spirit of compassion that pervades our lives. In fact, if you think about it, the more obviously religious a certain act is or a behavior, the more easily it can become meaningless. You know, what good is a religion that doesn't have the power to shape the heart? In other words, church services are no substitute for serving God and other people. We'll see. Of course, as a Jew, James was reflecting back to Old Testament worship. That was his filter. And you'll remember that although uh, uh, it was defined by a system of rituals and sacrifices, yet the prophets often attacked, and sometimes savagely, the very practices of offering sacrifices and going to church. Why? Because they proved unable to shape our hearts, our character. And thus the saying to obey is better than sacrifices. That is, to live a life of compassion is better than empty rituals. Jesus would tell the Pharisees, oh, if you'd only gotten it, God desires mercy, not sacrifices. For example, listen to the prophet Amos. And notice how he defines things. Notice what troubled God. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Now notice how righteousness and justice is defined. You trample on the poor and you force them to give you grain. I hate implications and despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. But let justice roll 
like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, what James is telling us here is that how we examine the genuineness of our faith, our religion, has got to go deeper. And you see, there is a way to discover the genuineness of our walk with Jesus. That is, that there is a visible fruit that reveals the authenticity of Christianity. There is. Now, in our culture, there is a pervasive idea that faith is to be private. You know, keep it to yourself. Our problem here, though, is that we have confused private faith with personal faith. On your outline there at the top, God calls us to have a personal faith. But he never says that we are to have a private faith. In other words, there's there's no such thing as invisible fruit. The new birth, James has talked about this earlier, what kind of set us on the path this whole thing. We were reborn, we were regenerated, and it is to be so potent and so compelling that it just has to manifest itself. And it's not in the bizarre, it is in the character. As Jesus says, you can tell a tree. How? By the fruit it bears. You see it. The renowned artist Paul Gustave Doré once lost his passport while traveling through Europe. And when he came to a border crossing, he explained his predicament to the guard, thinking that, you know, he was very famous, he was somewhat of a celebrity in that culture, and if they just name-dropped his name, that they would just let him by. But the guard only went on to explain to him how that many people had tried to pass these border crossings, claiming to be someone they weren't, so he wouldn't let them go. But Dore just kept, you know, insisting that I am this guy. And so the official said, all right, we'll give you a test, and if you pass the test, we'll let you through. So he gave him a piece of paper, gave him a pencil, and he pointed over to a group of peasants that were sitting over to the side and sketched them. And Dore did this so quickly, so precisely, so skillfully, that the guard immediately let him through. Now, throughout the letter of James, James is going to kind of keep beating this drum that there's always going to be certain things that make it clear and identify us with real religion. That conversion is meaningless unless it leads to a changed life. And a changed life goes nowhere, as we'll see, unless it sacrifices in service for other people and not just any person. So it doesn't matter whether we consider ourselves religious. The real question is, what does God consider us? And so James paints for us a picture of the type of things that should characterize real, authentic Christianity. On your outlines, number one, very simply, pure religion doesn't get caught in its own mouth trap. Whether it's gossip, outburst of anger, harsh criticism, complaining, judging, what has become very common in our culture, hate language, racist remarks. We can be sure of this. 
we're not going to be able to talk our way out of this one. Now, James isn't calling here for silence. He is calling for a restraint that, that's defined by a sense of thoughtfulness and kindness and compassion. Our verbal actions speak louder than our religious rituals, don't they? A woman once came up to John Wesley, he's the great revivalist uh, back in the mid-1700s, and he said, I, I think, the woman said, I, I think I have found my talent. And, and uh, Wesley said, well, tell me. She says, I think it is to always speak my mind. At which Wesley says, uh, ma'am, I don't think God would mind if you buried that talent. <laughs> so I heard one person state, I know that Christians speak only English, but I'm certain that they are bilingual because they have one language inside the church building and another one outside of it. It has to strike us that of all the characteristics that James would choose to identify pure, faultless religion, he starts with what we have to say. Don't you find that interesting? And that's because I think he understands that what we say is a window to the heart. Do you remember what Jesus said? Luke chapter 6, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars, translated. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. On your outlines, the tongue reveals what the heart conceals. Listen long enough. You'll know what's inside of me, not at this moment, out there. If I listen long enough, I know what's inside of you. So James tells us that what a person has to say vertically to God ought to reflect, ought to be consistent with what I have to say to and about you horizontally. Right? But James isn't through with us on this issue. He'll come back to it later, so we'll put it on the shelf for now. Number two on your outline. Pure religion cares for those whom others put out of sight, out of mind. I'll give you time to write that in if you want to. Now, I want you to know that this is a, an enormously bold claim in James's day. For him to put pure religion and to claim that it was identified by looking after orphans and widows. And it was bold because, as I've already pointed out, the Jews fell into the trap of, of defining their purity and the authenticity of their religion through their acts of worship. But as I hope you've already noticed just by quoting Amos, and I could go many, many other places, the prophets were constantly calling people to practice justice. 
Because while God's people were doing all the right things in church, they were turning a blind eye toward the exploited, the marginalized, the oppressed, the powerless. In that day, there was no government subsidy. There were no welfare benefits, right? Rather, people were expected, basically, lock, stock, and barrel, take care of their own families. In a perfect world, it works perfectly. So unless you were taken care of by your family, if you happen to be an orphan or a widow who could not get a job, did not receive the inheritance that was passed down, if there was one, you were reduced to one of three things. You either begged, you sold yourself as a slave, or you died of starvation. Which one would you choose? The point here is that there are social implications to the gospel. That is, when we see injustice, it ought to bother us, and it ought to activate us. Maybe not in defined uh, uh, and expressed in the same exact way. But that's what pure religion looks like. In the famous experiment conducted back, I believe it was in the 1950s, Stanley uh, Milgram, the, the Milgram experiment. Some of you will recognize it when I start describing it. The pictures alone might be enough for you if you're aware of this. Basically, he found some volunteers for this experiment, and he gave them the role of teacher. And he explained that they were going to participate in an experiment. He said that was to test the effects of electric shock on learning. But in reality, underneath the experiment, the real design was to test people's response to authority. Now, the teachers were introduced to the student. The student was actually an actor. He was in on this thing. And then they were shown, the teachers were shown this bogus electronic equipment. It looked very authentic. And it involved a series of switches. And they were marked. 15 volts, labeled mild shock. 300 volts, labeled intense shock. 450 volts, labeled danger, severe shock. And each time the student answered the question incorrectly, the teachers were expected to administer a higher level of shock. And if necessary, and this is where the authority figure came in, the researcher in a lab coat was there to instruct the teacher to keep increasing the voltage. At the level of 120 volts, the student, the actor, was to shout in pain. At 270 volts, the student started demanding that he be released from the experiment. At 400 I'm sorry, at 330 volts, the student was to start exhibiting, they said, a deadly silence. Results. Over half the teachers were willing to turn the dial all the way up to 450 volts. Now, there's a lot of things disturbing about this. 
Um, it not only tells us how easily we are jaded. I'm glad I didn't get asked to do this. Or how prone we are to mindless conformity. But perhaps worst of all, it tells us how insensitive we can be. That is, what a tremendous capacity we human beings have to remain silent as we observe the pain of others. Point on your outline, it is not enough to go to church while sitting idly by in the face of injustice. We're not only to worship God, we are to act like God. And have you noticed, have you noticed how we're told over and over again throughout the Old Testament scriptures as the heart of God is revealed that God has a special heart, it says, for the fatherless and the widows, the poor, the vulnerable, the forgotten. Julian, Flavius Julius, Julianus was his name, better known if you know any history, uh, Julian the Apostate. He was the emperor of Rome in the mid-third century. He was the nephew of Constantine the Great. Now that name you probably re- more likely remember. Uh, he's the one that kind of validated and, and uh, uh, officially uh, politically sanctioned Christianity uh, by, fa- by passing the Edict of Milan. Now, Julian's immediate family was murdered in a, in a dynastic struggle. And so Julian was raised by Constantine, who forced the young Julian to learn Christian doctrine as he was raised. The problem with all of this scene is that all of this left Julian with a lifelong hatred of Christianity. And so when he finally got into power, he basically he set to basically reverse everything that his uncle, by trying to root out and rid culture of the vestiges of Christianity. But in spite of all of his efforts, there was one thing he couldn't root out, even in his own mind. One of the things that Julian could not deny was the fact that Christians, whom, by the way, he called Galileans, and the reason he did that was to point out their obscure origins. You know, how could believe in a movement started over there, you know? Um, So there was kind of mockery and and, and accusation built into that. was the fact that Christians took on the social responsibility to love and care for people that everyone else overlooked. And in one of his letters, he put it this way. It is disgraceful when no Jew has to beg and when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well, that everyone can see that our own people do not receive aid from us. We live in a culture where there's a lot of philanthropy, and so I guess it can blur the lines, but I don't think we could always claim to be the only ones giving, but is that how we're recognized? Christianity in America. If you were a non-Christian and you just lived and learned like most people do through media, what would you think of Christians? Would you want to join them? And how are we going to overcome that? 
Number three, and finally, pure religion walks the talk. As James put it again, religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and, notice, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I want to point out here that in the original Greek translation, the word and is not in there. Uh, It's not actually in the original text. And my point is this, that these two identity points, caring for the fatherless and not struggling to maintain a pure life uh, in this culture, are not two thoughts joined together that's really one thought with two expressions. You can't separate the two. In other words, it is by engaging this world that we actually are able to be pure, not by isolating ourselves and withdrawing from things that are inconvenient when it comes to helping people. Now, if you pay attention to the life of Jesus, this becomes very clear. In fact, when you deal with what they call the conflict narratives, did you ever stop to realize you pulled them all together? And all the gospel writers, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke make these very clear. They, they line them up right after each other, saying, here was the issue between Jesus, God, and the current status of religion. If you pay attention, you'll realize that the conflicts had to do with their perceived strategy to achieve purity. That's what it was over. You see, the Pharisees saw purity as fragile. It was easily polluted. And so it was in need of protection. You want to be pure? Hide. And why? Because that's how they viewed God. God was a legislator. That was their perception, whose laws required scrupulous observance in order to protect their purity. And so they ended up isolating and withdrawing themselves, thinking that this somehow safeguarded their religion. But for Jesus, anyone paying attention? But for Jesus, the purity of God was essentially his compassion and his mercy. How do you define your strategy for purity? So, yes, we are to keep our lives and our reputations and our faith pure. But we must not miss the important distinction that Jesus does not teach removal from this world. But rather, Jesus stresses living in this world with intelligence and thoughtfulness and compassion. And to do this, we cannot be so oversensitive in our scruples and so religiously meticulous that we feel the need to hide ourselves to protect ourselves. You see, in the mind and life of Jesus on the bottom of your outlines, our faith is to be robust enough. to stride into the mire of this world and be a compassionate and purifying force. I cannot be pure, 
unless I am out there being compassionate, especially toward those who cannot return the favor. And religiously, you just, you just cannot pull those two ideas together, uh, apart. We are socially obligated in our world, our community. Got religion? What kind of religion do we, excuse the English, got? Struggle with me. If some way, um, as you think and reflect on this, perhaps thoughts you had long before you arrived in this auditorium this morning, uh, you feel some need, uh, encouragement, uh, strengthening from this church family, um, we want to give that to you, and we want to encourage you. So if we can help in any way, please feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.